Hey, well, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here just wanted to introduce our new sermon series. We're picking up where we left off last year in Exodus. In fact, uh, if you've been around Coastal for any length of time, we are making our way through the Pentateuch at the beginning of every new year. And so starting this week, we are picking up where we left off in Exodus. Last year, we talked about how God delivered his people from the hand of Egypt. And now this year, uh, we're going to join with the nation of Israel and we're going to see God's hands and provision as they travel across the wilderness. And we're going to end the series talking about the Ten Commandments. And of course, we will be applying all of this to God's gracious gift to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and how Jesus fulfills all the promises. Hey, also, I want to remind you, Coastal, we're in our small group season. And if you're not yet in a small group, I really hope that you'll make an eight-week commitment and join one of our small groups as we journey together through the book of Exodus. And so we love to unpack God's word in a community, in a small group. And so if you haven't yet joined a small group, get a grow book. Find a small group that fits your time. Join up. You won't regret it. It's a big part of your spiritual growth as together we journey through the book of Exodus. How many of any Eagles fans in here today? Today's a Super Bowl. Any Eagles fans? Yeah, a couple. Yes, they're always, they're always boisterous. Okay, they, you know, Eagles fans one time in the past, in the 80s, I think they booed Santa Claus. And so it's a very boisterous group. Any uh, Chiefs fans? Any Chiefs fans? See, they're much calmer, Eagles fans, much calmer. So, uh, so you guys know I love the NFL. Uh, my favorite team uh, is the Seattle Seahawks, who had you know a better year than was anticipated. But what you don't know is how I watch the Seahawks games. They uh, generally are, uh, and how I watch them this year in particular, they're generally the um, the afternoon game. They're the four o'clock game, and my small group meets on Sunday night. Uh, and so we're usually meeting from 5 to about 6.30. And so usually I'm in small group while the game is being played. And so what I do is I purchase the NFL premium pass. It costs about $99 for the year. And what that does is at the end of all the Sunday games, they upload the games on the Internet. And so what I do is I avoid the afternoon scores. I turn off all the notifications on my phone. I plug my ears. I won't let anybody tell me the score. And in fact, I've uh, I've actually in my small group. If you blurt out the Seahawks score, uh, we actually bring you before the elders for church discipline. Okay, like it's that serious that I not know the score. So that when I get home in the evening, uh, it's one of like just one of my sweet little rests. Uh, I'm hesitant to call it a Sabbath because it feels so spiritual. Pastor Collins is going to preach on that next week, but it feels like a Sabbath to me, man. I I love to sit and watch the game. And so this year, the way that I did it is my daughter, and I wanted to be more around the family, and so my daughter and wife, on Sunday night, we usually do breakfast for dinner, they would sit on the couch and watch Little House on the Prairie on the big TV. They got into that, and then I was on my laptop watching the Seahawks game at about 7.30 at night, new to me. I got my headphones in, okay? Everybody kind of got the picture, so my family's over here. I'm in my easy chair, headphones in. I'm watching the game, and I don't know how you watch football games, NFL games. I'm very engaged, and I'm a yeller, okay? So I'm yelling at my laptop with my family having no context what I'm yelling at, right? They're watching something completely different, and I'm a complainer throughout the game. My wife actually says to me, like, you yell the word ticky-tack a lot, like ticky-tack, right? And so... Uh, and so, you know, only NFL fans get that. The rest of you are like, what in the world is that? So I'm yelling, I'm yelling, yelling. I get done the game. I'm like, you're watching the game. Just had a great evening. Pull my headphones out. And my wife's like, so they lost. 
No, they didn't lose. They won, you know. At no time did she have anything in my experience that would have let her think that they won the game because I'm complaining the entire time, right? Anybody else here a complainer? Man, I wrestle with complaining. I'm just going to be honest with you. I am a glass half empty guy, and uh, I don't care how much you want to tell me it's half full. I'm a glass half empty guy. And so that lends itself in my life to complaining. And so we're going to see that right out of the shoot here in Exodus. So let me give you a little context before we jump in. We ended last year in Exodus with God delivering the nation of Israel. If you remember from Pharaoh, uh, the Passover lamb, they got backed up against the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, the nation of which we just sang about, Grace the Gardens, right? He turns seas into highways. You know, they cross the Red Sea on dry land. The Red Sea collapses on the nation of Egypt and their armies, and God delivers this this recently group of freed slaves. And now we pick up in chapter 16 that they're now in the wilderness, and they need to take the wilderness journey to this thing called the promised land. Now, I want to be clear. These are true actual events, okay, that happened in real history. Uh, But I also think there's a sense in which this is a metaphor for our spiritual journey, okay? So I really look at Exodus as the first 16 chapters is what, as a Christian, we would call the doctrine of justification. God frees us from slavery, the payment of sin taken on by his son. We're freed from slave slavery. And now what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is what I might call the doctrine of sanctification, our process and progress of growing in Christ all the way until our faith becomes sight, glorification, or heaven. Everybody with me? And so our promised land is not Israel. Our promised land is not America. Like our promised land is heaven. Everybody with me on that? And so and so I think these next couple chapters is kind of our journey as Christians. Uh, and there's some lessons to be learned, right? And so the first problem as they get out into this desert wilderness as they're crossing to the promised land is uh, they run out of food, right? And I heard somebody, I read, heard somebody recently say, we're, we're three meals from anarchy. Think about that. Like, that's probably true, right? You miss three meals, you're just going to start looking at your government and going, I don't think they're doing the right stuff, right? And so here we are, Aaron and Moses, promised land, heading towards promised land wilderness, and there's no food. And so they be, the nation of Israel uh, really begins to complain. And this is where God provides something for the people of Israel to eat on their journey across the wilderness. Anybody know, this is the first time we see the Bible, anybody know what's provided? Anybody? The manna, right? So this is the first time that we see manna. So let me pull out, so the, and he also provides quail as you read this. And by the way, I want you to, uh, I really hope that you will take the next month and read through Exodus again, right? Just a chapter a day, you'll get through it, just to kind of put these, remind yourself where we went last year, where we're going, and so we're going to cover 16 to 20. We're going to get all the way to the Ten Commandments, okay, is where we're going as a church. So let me pull a couple things out of this context of chapter 16. First of all, I believe that God is giving us a caution against the sin of complaining. He's giving us a caution against the sin of complaining. One of the things you're going to see, especially in 16 and 17, is just the people of Israel constantly complaining at Moses and Aaron. So Exodus 16, 1 and 2, it says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel 
grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Okay. Now they're grumbling because they're not hungry. They are, they're hungry. They're, they don't have food. Okay. So we'll cover that in just the next point, but let's just start here, right? They start as soon as the first hardship hits them, they grumble. All right. You ready? If you were to read chapter 14 and 15, you can do the math. This is about six weeks from the parting of the Red Sea. Six weeks. That, that's, that's us getting to the middle of March, having seen the incredible miracle of the Red Sea and already gone, God forgot about us, right? Six weeks from the Passover, six weeks from the Red Sea, six weeks from the provision of water in a little town called, or a little oasis called Mara. I think sometimes we read these Old Testament stories and we're like, you know, I'd have a deeper faith in God if I actually saw the parting of the Red Sea with my own eyes. Eh, probably not, right? We're not that much different, right? And by the way, miracles, I always say this, miracles don't make you believe in God. Miracles just separate what's already in your heart to believe or unbelief. We see this all throughout the Gospel of John. Every time God, Jesus does a miracle, doesn't ma- everybody that sees a miracle doesn't go, oh, Jesus is God. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and half the group's like, we need to put him to death. Huh, what? Because miracles don't change a heart. A heart's either soft towards the things of God or not. And by the way, we, we're, we live in a culture that's like set up for grumbling. We're set up for it. So we have to be extra cautious to grumbling and complaining. Listen, you can, nobody just gives you the news anymore. They give you how to think about the news too, right? They, they give you the bent that you need to, the, the perspective you need to have on the news, right? Like you've all chosen your news station. Some of you are like, I know, is anybody in here watching that one? I hope not. I hope they're not watching CNN. I hope they're not Newsmaxers, you know, or on it. Like, why? Because they all give you the bent. This is what, here's the news and here's how you have to think about it. And by the way, here's, I want you to start grumbling about the other side. Yes. And social media. Right? Social, I mean, people don't grumble on social media. Right? Like, it's just set up for me to get behind my keyboard and be like, send. Thank God the whole world knows what I think about this. Right? They needed that. They needed that perspective. The people of Israel began to murmur and grumble against the leadership. We do the same thing, man. You know, God, if I was in charge, you know what? You're not in charge. And if you were in charge, it'd be because God put you there and you would be accountable to God. We talked about that last week, by the way, right? And it's a humbling thing to be in charge of anything. And when you're not in charge of the whatever the anything you're grumbling about, then you need to be praying for the person that is in charge because they're going to give an account to the Lord. So how often do we pray for the president we didn't vote for, right? And ask them, God, you know, lead them, guide them. You put them there. Philippians chapter 2, the Oswald says, do all things without what, church? 
grumbling or disputing, right? And by the way, Paul also tells us we get to fill our grumbling with something else. First Thessalonians 5, right? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. By the way, you want to know what the will of God is for you? Give thanks in all circumstances. Listen, when we default to grumbling, and a lot of times we think we're grumbling against a person, the nation of Israel thought they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Did you know when we grumble, we're actually grumbling against God? Because there's no circumstance going on in your life that God is not in charge of and sovereign over. Because God is using all things to bring praise and glory to his name and to mold you more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. So when we go through a hard time and we start to grumble against that person, we're forgetting God put me here because he's doing something in me to, dis- to make me more like Jesus and to display his glory through the circumstance. Amen? And so we grumble. And I think right out of the shoot, man, and you're going to see that in the next couple of chapters of Exodus, we need to be cautious against the sin of grumbling. All right, second thing I want to pull out of this text this morning, number two, freed slaves often look back to captivity. Sometimes we, uh, we look back to the way things were and we glorify it. Like, man, the good old days. So going on in Exodus 16, so they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. What did they say? Number verse three of Exodus 16. And the people of Israel said to them, Man, that's the Sean Brown interpretation. Man, would we that we had just died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? Remember when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Six weeks removed from the Red Sea. Six weeks from, you know, you turn seas into highways. And they're going, now we're out here, we're going to starve. And by the way, as Christians, we do the same thing. Probably, not always, but I suspect most of us, when we became Christians, we were in a tough spot. Our idols had left us empty. We were in an empty spot. We cry out to God. We receive the gospel we start to journey in the freedom from sin and, and disgrace that we bore before we know Jesus. And somewhere along the way in this journey of sanctification and growing to be more like Jesus, it gets difficult. And then we look back and go, man, I remember when I was single. That was so much better. Yes? Man, I remember before I took on these responsibilities at church, this small group is driving me crazy. Man, I remember before I had all these kids and this family and I had to work every day. Man, we started looking back before we were Christians and think, man, those were the good old days. And even as Christians, man, if, if there's a sin in your life that you keep coddling and you really don't want to give it up, it's really the idea that, man, slavery is better than freedom. How quick these folks were to forget the difficulties in making bricks. How quick they were to forget Exodus 10, 11, 12, 13, 
but you're going to make bricks, but you're going to make them without straw. You're going to make them without the materials. And if you don't get the quota done by the end of the day, the taskmasters will beat you. And they cry out to God and God delivers. And we have the same thing. Like, man, we're bound up in our sin and our shame and it's unbearable. And finally, for whatever reason, by God's grace and mercy, we cry out to him for salvation. We start the journey of salvation and the first circumstance that's difficult, we go, man, it was way better back then. And how quick we are to forget that the same God that delivered us from our slavery and our sin and our shame is the same God that's with us in the, pro- in the process of sanctification. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean he's left us. He delivered us here. He's going to save us daily as he conforms us into the image of his son, and he's going to give us everything we need to make it to the promised land. Amen? God hasn't left us. And so, man, freed slaves often look back to captivity. We do the same thing. Number three, third thing I want you to see out of this text this morning, and I think it's a, it's a call to obedience. If I could put a little side note there, I might say a call to obedience even in the small things. A call to obedience even in the small things. And so God provides something, okay, for the nation of Israel. They're hungry. Man, you know, they're complaining. Man, remember the, we sat around in Egypt. We had plenty of meat in our pots and plenty of bread, you know. Verse 4, here it is. So the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. It's very important what he says next. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Okay, so before I read the next verse, God says he's going to rain bread from heaven, and then he gives instruction. I want you to take just enough bread to feed yourself for the day. All right? And so... The next day, and the bread would be there from the, it said from the dew of the ground till the sun came. So basically they had about a half day to gather enough food to get them through the day. So you come out of your tent that first day. So the next day, Moses, they're grumbling. Hey, tomorrow when you get up, there's going to be bread from heaven. You come out of your tent, and what do you see? Anybody? What do you see? What is it called? Okay, do you know what the word manna means? So you come out of your tent and you go, what is this? You know, that's what they called it. So every day they get up and they go, man, let's eat, what is this? What is it? And they eat manna and they're instructed and God gives them instruction. And it's a test to see if they'll be obedient in the small things. Verse 19 of Exodus 16, check this out. Kind of Moses coming back and making sure they understand the instructions of the Lord. It says, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses, and some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms, and it what, church? How many of you right now, your mind went to the Grinch, right? Stink, stink, stunk, right? And Moses was angry with them, says the text. Now listen, the consequence of their disobedience wasn't like extreme. It, it wasn't death, right? You know, uh, you took too much, now I'm going to kill you, okay? It's just that it stunk, right? Did you, ever, did you ever do, like, you guys have done this, right? You, those of you are in the 
in the diaper stage, right, with your kids. Some of the senior adults are like, I'm going to be in the diaper stage too. So anyway, but you know, it... cut, cut, cut that out. So, um, right, you ever do this? Like they make these things, you know, now that you put all the diapers in and it keeps the smell. And, but, but you ever get lazy with one of your kids' diapers and you throw it in the bottom of the trash can? You're like, my spouse won't notice, you know. And then, like, two days later, you're like, who threw the diaper in the bottom of the trash can kind of thing, right? How many of y'all did that? I've done that plenty of times, right? Man, what stinks? So I want you to imagine, like, you know, you go out, you collect your mana, you think you got enough for the family, but there's somebody in your family that doesn't fully trust the Lord, so they take a little extra. What happens in the morning? Everybody knows, right? Like, you know, like, all right, who took too much mana? It reeks in this tent this morning. Or maybe we just have middle schoolers. I don't know. But, you know, it's horrible and stinks things up. Listen, there is an element here that God is testing and growing all of us to obey him, even in the small stuff, right? The consequences aren't always like the worst or most extreme they could be. But, but some of you in your life, like it, it's just stinking it up because you're not obeying the Lord in the little things. I call this the final 1%. Like, I think a lot of us like, God, you have 99% of my life, but there's this 1% I just, I won't hold on to. I've, through my 20 years of pastoring, man, I've done a lot of marriage counseling. And can I tell you, I know for a fact when I hear the story of two people fussing in their marriage, there's 1% I'm not hearing about. And it's the 1% that really matters. It's this little secret that like is stinking up the marriage and I don't have the truth. Your spouse doesn't have the truth. And it's messing things up because it just stinks. Listen, what's the 1% in your life? What's the piece? Even as I'm mentioning it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's putting a finger on your heart and going, I need this one. And you know it. Maybe there's even a sense that, that God hasn't yet expanded your platform or your influence or your opportunities because you're still just withholding in the little thanks. Right? I mean, Jesus told, told us this in the parable of the talents, right? Where he gives out a certain amount of talents. People steward the talent that God's given them to steward well. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says this, verse 23. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, the scripture says. So I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So let's be serious for a moment. What's your 1%? Remember when I was a student pastor, you know, and I see Pastor Collins in here, charge of student ministries family ministries at Coastal, like, I remember having students all the time go, hey, Pastor Sean, you know, like, how far is too far to go on a date and still be righteous? All right? What base? I don't know if we still do bases. We did bases back then. What base can I get to and still be okay with God? And I'm like, we're asking the wrong question. It's not how far can you go. It's how, how do we date in holiness and purity? Maybe that's your 1%. Like maybe there's, you're, you're dating, it's a little too physical and, and, and you're not honoring the Lord and you know it. Maybe it's taxes, right? Oh, it's a, 
It's a cash deal. It's a cash deal. What's that mean? Government don't allowed to know about it. What did Jesus say about that? Jesus was asked a trick question about that 1%, right? That final 1% of that. that Jesus, should we, give, should we give temple tax? Should we give our tithes? Should we give to the church? Or should we give to the government? What did Jesus say? Give the Caesars what the Caesars. Give the guy that's not an either or. By the way, you live in a way better government than Caesar. You think you're paying too many taxes? Go vote. Amen? But in the meantime, render to Caesars what Caesars. Maybe that's your 1%. Maybe you're not giving to your church. I can't, I can't afford to give to God. Like, crazy? See the price of eggs? Maybe there's a bad habit. It's not, it's not killing you, but it's just a bad habit. Like, I need to change this so that I can give glory to God in the final one. Maybe there's a good habit that needs to start. You get up in the morning and have devotions and spend some time with the Lord. Feast on Christ right out of the gate, right? It's a test, God said. I'm testing you. Why? He's taking them to a promised land. He's about to build a nation that the goal was to bring glory to God. Only the goal was to bring the Messiah through the nation of Israel. But they were to bring, be the kind of the pinnacle of the glory of God. He's, I think God's training them. If I can't trust you with the manna, how am I going to trust you with the whole nation? Right? And so God tests us. He wants us to obey him even in the small things. All right, number four. Obedience is following. Number four, fourth thing I want to pull out this morning, community provision. I think there's some hints here of community provision. As Christians, and we could look at Acts 2, and we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8 in just a minute. But there's hints here in Exodus of, as Christians, we are to take care of one another. I hinted at this last week, right? Lesson to those who are persecuted. And I said, I couldn't, and by the way, the early church was persecuted. Last week, I talked about losing tax break. Like, what do we lose our tax write-off? Listen, the early church gave without a tax write-off. Amen? Acts 2, man, they're being persecuted, they're being taken care of. And, and I think we see these hints here, and, and I'll tell you why in a minute, in Exodus 16. So check this out, Exodus 16, verse 17. And the people of Israel did so. In other words, they got up, they collected the manna in the morning. They gathered some. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. I think what Moses is teaching us here in Exodus is community provision. I want you to imagine for a minute, you get up in the morning and it's time to go. You have about a couple hour window to go collect your food for the day. And, um, and there's some people in your community that are disabled. Like they can't go out and get as much as other people, right? And whatever. They're older. They're younger, either side of that spectrum, right? So there's some people that got to collect and make sure that everybody has enough food for the day. Everybody with me? And I think what Moses is saying is like, there's this community provision. Even if you couldn't collect as much as you really needed, there was just plenty to take care of everybody in the community. And the reason that I know that's what Moses is talking about is because the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 leans into this Exodus passage to teach us this very thing. He he says so in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 there's a huge famine in the land and some of the churches that the apostle Paul has planted are suffering. They don't have as much, there's no food, there's no work. 
And so the apostle has taken up a collection from the churches that aren't suffering to provide the physical needs for the churches he planted that are suffering, okay? And the Corinthian church had promised a big offering, but they hadn't yet fulfilled the promise. And so 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is basically saying, look, you got to give, you promised we need to take this collection. You promised you take it. And this is going to the churches. And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 to 15. Very important what he says right out of the gate. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But that is a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And here's where he leans in the Exodus chapter 16. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's fascinating, by the way. I love what Paul says at the beginning. Paul says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at present time should supply their need. Here's what Paul's saying by saying that. Paul's saying to the church of Corinth, I'm not talking about funding laziness. Listen, I'm not saying you guys go work hard while they're in retirement, while they're playing golf. I'm talking about an absolute, genuine need. I'm talking about not funding laziness or fiscal incompetence. I'm not talking about a government social program. I'm not, I'm not talking about unfairly giving to something. I'm talking about community of Christ, the community of believers, meeting physical needs of other believers. Everybody with me? We're here to help one another. Yes? So I'm going to tell you a story. This goes way back, and none of you will know this person, so in fact, this person's with the Lord, so they'll know it's true what I'm about to tell them. Um, years ago, I had a member of this church come to me, and they had a $1,000 electric bill. And this was in the days when electric was cheap, Okay. And they had it. Did they have a genuine need? They were like, if I don't pay this electric bill, my power is going to be shut off. That's a problem, right? And it's a problem that we as a community can solve and should solve. But it's a twofold problem. We're going to take care of the electric bill, but I'm going to ask some questions. What questions am I going to ask? How in the world did you get a $1,000 electric bill, right? In a small apartment. Listen, the reason there are large government social programs that are breaking the financial backs of Americans is because the church has not done what it's supposed to do. Amen? And here's the deal. The church does it better than the government. And you want to know why? We take care of both short-term and long-term solutions. The church doesn't just fund fiscal incompetence. And the church doesn't just help laziness. Paul says, I'm not asking you to give and be, you, you're working hard and they're not. The church does it in relationship. And so with this person, I was going to go, yes, we are going to help the need, but I'm also going to make sure you don't get back here again. 
Everybody with me? And we're going to take a look at your budget. We're going to look at income. We're going to see if you're able to work. Maybe you need to find a job. Maybe you're spending too much money on, you know, cable add-ons that you don't really need. Like, we went through the budget, and we made sure this person didn't get back there as well. So it's loving, giving community in the riverbank of accountability. Everybody with me? That's what a church should be doing. That's what Paul tells us to do. We get that from Exodus, where Paul and Moses says, everybody had enough, and we made sure everybody had what they needed. So I'm going to say something really bold, and then I'm going to move on to my final point. Ready? If you're a member of this church, you're a church member, you've been through our membership process, you're a member of this church, you legit tithe to this church. If you have a financial need, you come see the leadership, we will help you. Amen? We will help you with the riverbanks I just gave you. What's the need? How can we help you in the short term? And how can we help you in the long term? Because we are here to take care of one another in community. And I mean that sincerely because the Bible tells us to do it that way. Amen, church? All right, final truth this morning. Here we go. Final truth this morning is the manna of the Old Testament points to the New Testament truth that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Number five, Jesus is the ultimate and final bread of heaven. Exodus 16, 4 to 6, then says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So in other words, they set aside a Sabbath and, and gathered enough to have food through the Sabbath day. Six, verse six. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Very fascinating, okay? So God, in providing physical sustenance for his people, providing manna, says, I want you to do this and remember that it's the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. So I want you to go back to the pictures that I'm giving you of Exodus. The deliverance from Egypt is a picture of our what? Justification. During our sanctification, as we feast daily on Christ, and he delivers us daily from our needs and our challenges and grows us in the image of Christ— it reminds us of our justification. Everybody with me? I really think that's the picture that Moses is giving us. And he's saying, God rained down from heaven to save us and remind us of his saving of us. And so as Christians, we're reminded that our ultimate need of saving is not the difficult circumstance you're in today. Our greatest need of saving is our soul to be freed from the bondage of sin. Our soul is in spiritual bondage, and what we're doing before we know Christ is to try to find life in all of these things that don't give life. Romans 1. Romans 1 says every single one of us in this room is a worshiper. It's not a matter of if you worship, it's a matter of what you worship. Okay, You will worship something. And the Bible calls anything besides worshiping God in Christ, anything else that you worship is an idol. And idols leave you unsatisfied. 
In fact, idols leave you worse off than you were before. So if your idol is money, man, you work and you're on this rat race wheel. You ever seen any off gerbils? They get on those wheels. They go like this. And you're kind of, that's what an idol looks like. And if I could just get to, nobody here has gerbils. Okay. So like, like you look at me like you've never heard this. I've seen this before. Like a gerbil. Any gerbil owners? Raise your hand. Why do you have rats in your house? Anyway, so that's between you and God. Right? Man, if I just had more money. And it's exhausting and you finally get more money. And guess what? It doesn't satisfy you. And it just leads to more stress and more problems. And it just satisfies you. I just need a bigger house. If I just need a bigger house, you get the bigger house and it just leads to more problems. And I'm lonely. Man, if God would just bring me a spouse... And you're on that, like, man, if I could, you're on every dating app, if I could just get, God brings you a spouse and suddenly that person can't satisfy you because they're as needy as you are. And idols leave us worse than before. So our souls need spiritual saving. We need saving from the penalty of our sin from our holy God. And he gave us that saving and it's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, I say this all the time, especially during my prayers between the second song. I always say, God gave us his very best gift already. He's already taken care of your greatest need. Your soul to be saved from the wrath of God for the penalty of your sin by the person and the work of Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. We need to turn from our sin, believe and receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we do that, the spirit of God enters us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you. Your greatest need, our greatest enemy has already been vanquished. Don't you think he's going to get you through the wilderness journey? Amen? We see this Jesus leaning into the bread of heaven in John chapter 6. So let me give you some context on John chapter 6. Jesus just fed the 5,000. Okay? So I want you to get the picture. Jesus is teaching 5,000. It actually says 5,000 men. So the idea is 5,000 heads of households, probably 15,000 or more. Gets done teaching. This is before refrigeration. Okay, you don't go home to your refrigerator and there's food. Like you have to get your food each day like manna at the marketplace. Jesus looks at his disciples, says, hey, you guys need to feed these guys. And disciples do this. How are we going to do that? You know, kind of thing. So, so what happens? They go out and they're like, anybody here bring like a snack? And, you know, up comes this kid, right? And he brings what? Five loaves, right? Two fish. Jesus prays over it, feeds fifteen or 20,000 people, and there's leftovers. Lots of leftovers. Now, I want you to imagine you're a Jewish person praying for the Messiah. And this guy is claiming to be the Messiah. And you're serving under the oppressive Roman government. You get done his teaching and he feeds you. Your mind goes to what? Social program. If this guy's king, I ain't got to work so hard. He takes a couple loaves. We just make sure he has a couple loaves of bread each day and everybody eats. Right? They forget that their greatest need is to sin and uh, like to be freed from sin. 
And so they're just looking at Jesus to give them lots of food, man. This is a win-win for everybody. They want to make him king. And so Jesus does something crazy as the crowds grow. Kind of like Pastor Sean last week preaching on, we're going to be persecuted. That doesn't help grow a church, all right? Jesus does something similar. He gets up in John chapter 6, verse 32, says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. Like, we're ready. We ain't got to work for food anymore. I'm in, right? And so Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Now, I'm not taking you all the way through John 6, but it gets more controversial. The people are sitting there going, wait a minute, what's he saying? Like, he's our spiritual sustenance? Like, Jesus is the bread of heaven? You know, he's claiming I am status, like God told Moses in Exodus? Like, what is he saying? Like, and they're like, isn't this like Mary and Joseph's kid? And so instead of Jesus, like, clearing things up, going, like, I'm talking spiritually, like, guys, don't worry about it and keep the crowd big, he leans into it and makes it more mind-boggling. He says, no, what I'm really saying is unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And the disciples are like, why is he doing this? This is making ministry really hard, you know, like, he's acting crazy, you know. And then Jesus looks at the disciples and he's like, you guys want to, so people start leaving. He looks at the disciples, he goes, you guys want to go too? Listen, church, Jesus is the bread of heaven. There is no other way. Your government, your 401k, your checkbook, another person, your kids, nobody can fix or satisfy your soul except Jesus Christ. He's the bread of life, and you need to feast on him daily as you journey through the wilderness. And it probably is going to cost you something. There's going to be some friends that think you're nuts, and there's going to be some family members that think you should be committed, and there's going to be some coworkers that might think you need to be fired, and there's going to be some neighbors that quit inviting you to the cookouts. But following Jesus is the only hope for your soul. And you need to feast on him daily. I think this picture of manna is a picture of our daily walk with Jesus. We get up in the morning we feast on Christ. We get in his word. We pray, man, I need Christ. And we do that on Monday. And it gives us enough sustenance, not for Friday, but for Monday. And we get up on Tuesday and we feast on Christ in this wilderness journey of sanctification and go all the way to glorification. And it's enough food for Tuesday. And we get to Wednesday and all the way. And then Sunday, we gather for corporate worship. And we're encouraged because we're not in this alone. There's other brothers and sisters that believe. And we sing and it encourages our hearts. And then somewhere in the midweek, we go to a small group. And that also encourages us. And we find a place to serve as we give back to others. And that also encourages us. We do the connect group serve piece. But we're all along the week, we're feasting on Christ because he is the bread of heaven. He is the manna from heaven, and it's a shadow of the full and final day when his glory and our faith will become sight, and we will be fully and finally freed from our sin, but it is found in Christ alone. Some of you are leaving here starving because you're fine trying to find life in idols, and the only place you're going to find it is in Jesus. Amen? Jesus is the bread of heaven. All right. I'm about out of time, so I'll invite the worship team up. C.S. Lewis wrote this quote. Some of y'all have heard this. 
C.S. Lewis said that our desires are not too strong, but they're too weak. We're pursuing things that don't actually give life. And so he said this, he said, we're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. So I'm about taking a cruise. You're satisfied making mud pies when you should be make, taking a cruise. And then he says, we are far too easily pleased. Some of you are settling for the things of the world when the bread of heaven is offered you. Church, I want to encourage you. Feast on Jesus Christ. Daily. 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 The only way we make it through the wilderness is to feast on Christ. Amen, church? All right. Here's what I want to do. Bring a, word, a prayer team. Come on up. If you need prayer today, they are here for you. Listen, life's hard sometimes in the journey. We need other people praying for you. We just talked about community, right? Community provision. Part of the community provision is spiritual. You need prayer. Other people will pray for you. Never leave without having prayer. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you want to receive Christ, you want to like, man, I'm all tangled up in things in the world. I want to feast on the bread of heaven. Come talk to our prayer team, and they would love to talk to you about how you can connect to your creator through Christ and know Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. We're going to go out singing about feasting on Christ this morning. Father, we're going to leave here, and by Wednesday, we are going to be starving if we're not feasting daily on Christ. You could have left us in our sin, our shame, and our brokenness, but God, you gave us your very best gift. The Exodus 16 manna was just a a small little touch of the great glory that you gave us in Christ. The true bread of heaven, that when we repent of sin and believe in him, God, we, we feast. The things of the world grow strangely dim. God, I pray for these people. They love you. They're serious-minded about following you, God, and I pray that you would help them to carve out the moments this week to feast on Christ, to gather their manna, remind their hearts and minds their need for Jesus so that we won't look back to Egypt and go, man, those were the good old days. No, we want to look forward to what you have for us. God, may we be forward-looking, daily feasting. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.